0: This is the Janet Killeen Books Podcast. I am reading from my collection of short stories, There Is a Season. This story is called An Autograph Album. Ribs of Short Streets set at right angles to the breastbone of Otley Road in a smoke-blackened northern city. A small terraced house with a scullery kitchen and what had once been an outside toilet. A mean, close, tired house in my childhood memory, full of sighing corners, of rubbed-upholstery, collapsed plants, faded photographs. The smell of age the tinge of incontinence, faintly unwashed clothes and body, a weariness of spirit like a vapour. But for a visitor, the best china, the hoarded biscuits, the polished silver spoons brought out in tremulous joy, garnered out of penury for this moment. My great-aunt, Mabel, single, thin, quavering in voice and movement. Timelessly old, she seemed to me then, as though age were a strange country that I was visiting, not knowing its language. There is nothing of her possessions left now, although there was once, I recall, an autograph album of the turn of the last century saying nothing in the careful cursive clichés of schoolgirl affection. Roses are red. Violet's blue, by hook or by crook, I'll be last in your book. A thick, dull, maroon leather cover, gold-edged paper, pink, blue, cream. She must have been a young girl then, about to feel the swelling of the tide as the new century began in rhythm with her own early womanhood. Was there ever a young man? Perhaps. Photographs of those sepia days capture for us the distant, polite diffidence of them, raising hats, holding bicycles. If there ever was such a man, he waited too long to ask his question, or she refused. That remains her secret. Whatever hope there was marched away as she stood watching at the window. After the war, other women's griefs surrounded her, widows and sisters, mothers and fiancées, waiting for some desperate resurgence of life from the mud, but there was none. In their reality, her might-have-been was lost. The unmarried youngest daughter, she became the housekeeper for her father after his wife's death, a pitiless man, blind to any hopes she might have held. Through trade he had blustered his way into almost middle-class prosperity, but not learned generosity. She cared for him, his trampling presence squeezing her to the edges of rooms until the day of his death. Who knows what shouting demands or ridicule she bore. The hot water carried to him for shaving each morning, the false teeth cleaned with bicarbonate of soda, the emptied chamber-pot. Then, after the dreariness of the years, the relentless demands from upstairs, as he lay dying, sweating and plucking at the sheets in his fear of death, shouting his impotence at her to fetch and carry the futile comforts that he craved. I see her shrink, the face pulled tight in self-protection, the body carried carefully upright. Only her voice betrays her, gaining a resonance like shivering water, a dam of tears. Little was left to her as an inheritance. Enough for this small house. A kind of happiness dwelt with her for a while. She touched gently the clumsy inherited furniture too big for the rooms, caressed the frames of monochrome photographs, the brass sheen of fire-tongs, and the silver teapot. Then, as she faced the dwindling income left to her, she took in lodgers. Young clerks and shop-assistants, whose cheery greetings and ever-present hunger at breakfast and supper, taught her very cautiously how to smile, and to remember days long before the war. They came and went, their boots creaking along the landing late at night, their stories of their girls and the dances and day trips to Scarborough, the longed-for motorbike and their hopes of promotion, enough for engagement to Dolly or Mavis, Gladys, Millicent. She smiled and nodded, always kind, a little shocked at the freedom with which they spoke of their young women and the confidence they had of choices unimaginable to her. They saw her, if they saw her at all, through the lens of their preconceptions, a quiet spinster fading into her furniture, gently cleaning up after them as they clattered away to work or wishing them well as they chattered about the plans they had for the weekend. They might have seen her hands, once beautiful, twisting with the desperate desire to please, to accommodate this sprawling abundance of life and energy and hunger within the narrowness of this house and her life. "'Slowly she was able to invest into the home "'from the little she rescued, "'from the rent, what was left, "'from the eggs and bacon, "'the steak and kidney puddings, "'the endless tea and cocoa, "'a small bathroom and a toilet, "'a new sink in the scullery, "'a gas oven. "'And then, one day, "'drawn by her advertisement, "'respectable gentlemen lodgers, "'breakfast and supper provided,' References required. Mr Benson, insurance, a kindly widower in his early fifties, came to her. The last of her young men had left, new jobs, new marriages, leaving her affectionately with promises to write and send their photographs and bring their wives to visit, but already looking far beyond her to lives of dazzle and energy in which they would never grow old. Thomas Benson stood on her doorstep, appreciating the quietness, the cautious net curtains, the polished brass, and rang the doorbell. He was a connoisseur of lodgings, moving from one to another through all the rootless years since the war. Following his company's transfers from London to Birmingham and now to Leeds, and glad of a job that had given him security despite all the struggles of the early thirties and one that had held his mind tightly occupied in actuarial figures and forecasts since that day of engulfing loss. He brought his mind back from the brink of memory and rang the bell. She opened the door to him, seeing a tired, crumpled face, the restrained suit, waistcoat and tie, the hand courteously raising the hat, the other holding a valise, Miss Lambert? She nodded, swallowing her shyness. This first opening of the door to a prospective lodger cost her dearly. I have come in response to your advertisement. My name is Mr. Benson, Mr. Thomas Benson. I would like to inquire about the room. Yes, yes, of of course. Please come in. She saw with approval that he took time to wipe his shoes on the doormat and that he removed his hat. She led him to the small front room, offering him tea, a chair near the then unlit fire, kindly shy inquiries about his journey, time to recover and reconnect himself with this new place, this small room, in yet another city, another beginning. He was very tired, he realized, and although she was nervous, her voice uncertain, her hands trembling, she did not fuss. She left him to settle while she made the tea and brought it to him quickly. Every motion of him, the swift smile that released his face from its creased weariness, the neatness of his movements, stirring the cup, returning the spoon to the saucer, touched some spring of sensibility in her. And so they sat quietly together, as though it had been always, until the mantelpiece clock struck and told them, Time. I will show you the room, she said. No other words. They walked upstairs, she leading, he following, and on the landing she opened the second door on the left. It was clean, sparse, a carpet edged with the dark stained boards, a single bed with a mahogany headboard, a chest of drawers, a small wardrobe. Just across the landing, she continued, the bathroom. The gas keys are for hot water. I include that in the rent, of course. She talked to fill the space that both knew had come between them, the risk of too many or too few words. Words, he realised, were like birds. A sudden movement an unexpectedness would drive them away altogether. Supper is at seven o'clock, but of course we can make arrangements if it doesn't suit you. Breakfast at a quarter to eight. Her voice stumbled over the time. She smiled and swallowed, her hands turned one within the other. The room is delightful, he answered, and the arrangement's perfect. How soon may I move in? I will, of course, pay a deposit. And he smiled and watched the miracle of her face. The months passed, and the spring brought lighter evenings and a hint of warmth, and he asked her to join him for a walk just a brief stroll beneath the trees in Roundhay Park and companionable murmured admiration of the crocuses breaking in gold and purple beside the path. He drew her arm into his own and felt acutely the trembling and its slow cessation as they walked together. He saw within the ageing woman the girl that once was and as the spring turned to early summer he asked her to marry him. Such an upheaval of her small securities and independence was at first unimaginable, nor could she think how it might be to admit anyone to her soul and body's privacy. Shaken, shy, she thought to turn him down, but he was patient with her, gentle, steadfast. One September day in 1936, she married him and gradually learned how to enjoy how to trust, a tentative and tender happiness. She learned contentment, listening to the wireless with him in the evenings, walking through the park together, sharing the delight of bodies seeking to heal one another, to give to each other the secrets of themselves. To her he confided all that he could bear to speak of, of the years in the trenches, the miracle of survival and the abrupt end, he had believed, of all happiness. The theft of his young wife in the influenza epidemic after his return from the war. She gave to him, in slow and uncertain sentences, the long years of caring for her tyrannical father, the silent watch of age encroaching from the corners of her life. They had five years The war broke into their lives as it did all other lives, even though he was too old for active service. He volunteered as an air raid warden, patrolling the streets, watching through the long alert hours, night after night, even as the bombs fell on the night of the 14th of March, 1941, and shook her frame. Shivering the china in the dresser and causing her, as if by some instinct of spirit, to catch her breath and gasp, he walked up Cardigan Road headingly, and the blast took him, crushing him against a wall and burying him beneath the rubble. The next morning they found him and came to tell her. Years passed, and when I met her, she was old and thin trembling with eagerness to please and be warmed by appreciation. Then a stroke took her to a bleak hospital ward. Dumb and immobile, her face crooked and limbs sucked of life, she waited. Eyes only spoke beseechingly of what was, had been, and might have been. For eighteen months she felt the kind, the clumsy and the cruel, turn and probe, wash and change her meagre body, one of many such lives, parallel in their beds. One night she slipped considerately away, without giving notice. Her straitened circumstances had not stolen the fragile, private courage of her life, nor the secret buried joy of having been loved. Remembering her now It is as if the scent of old, crushed rose petals has been reawakened after discovery in some secret and forgotten drawer. Long hidden, the fragrance breaks out, the deep mystery of individuality preserved. And this, her autograph album's final entry. You have been listening to An Autograph Album from the book There is a Season, read by the author Janet Killeen and produced by Duncan P.B. For more stories, please subscribe on iTunes or from wherever you get your podcasts.